I want you to, to think now, put yourself in a society, you can try to figure out where I'm talking about, where sexually, sexual immorality is the norm. Uh, adultery is common. If you don't commit adultery, you would be on the outside versus a normal person. Fornication, sex between people who are not married, very common. Homosexuality, uh, extremely common, just part of the culture, really. Taxes are high. The government's oppressive. Um, Christianity, Judaism, really fringe, crazy kooks. Uh, and no power, no respect in the society at all. Am I talking about America? <laughs> Am I talking about some European, liberal, secular country? No, I'm talking about Palestine where Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. And the Roman Empire that Jesus lived in, if you can imagine, it was more irreligious and immoral than, than America today and then many countries in the world today. And what I want us to see is in that environment, because we're in a sermon series title for times like these, how do we as Christians, how do we as a church live effectively in the days that we live in? We can shut ourselves in, we can condemn everybody, or we can become like the world, or we can be effective in the midst of it all. That's the goal. Jesus was not only perfect in everything he said, he was perfect in everything he did. And he gives us the perfect example of how not only to live successfully, but to live effectively for times like this. That's pretty cool, isn't it? We're in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, if you have your Bibles. If you were awake and you can remember back a week ago, we were in John chapter 8 last week. I didn't feel like y'all got it, so we're going to just run through that sermon again. If you ever hear a preacher say that, that means he didn't study that he felt like you didn't get it. This is such a great text that we could camp out in here for, for many weeks, but we're just going to do it this Sunday and uh, last Sunday. I want to start with a word, and we're talking about how Jesus lived effectively in his world and how, how that relates to you. You're not a Christian. This is who Jesus is. This is how the church should be, and this is how Christians are to be. We're going to begin with the word love. We're going to begin with the word love. How appropriate and how essential this is to everything we see in this story. How essential it is to understanding Jesus and being who he's called us to be. In chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to walk through this story uh, of refresher. If you were here last week and if you weren't, we'll fill you in. Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives uh, at evening. Jesus had just been getting into it with the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and they were mad at him. They wanted to kill him. And so Jesus leaves the temple, and he says he goes to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you were, even today, if you were at the temple where Jesus was, and part of it is still standing, it's about a mile or two walk to, uh, uh, to the Mount of Olives, and they may have camped out there, or Bethany, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Lazarus is Jesus fixing to raise him from the dead in three chapters. They lived there in Bethany, near here, so I may have been spending the night with them in Bethany. And in verse 2, it says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, 
where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach. This was probably a place in the temple called the Court of Gentiles. It was a place where, or excuse me, the Court of Women, where Jewish men and Jewish women all could gather in there. That's where the treasury was. And he sat down to teach. That was his style then. The teacher sat down. Everybody else stood up. And he begins to teach. And undoubtedly, and this is important, a huge crowd of people began to gather around him. And this is where it, uh, it starts going a little bad. In verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, this is the, the, this is the Green Beret of Bible scholars of Judaism. These should be the people supporting Jesus and lifting him up, but these are the most condemning, judgmental, hateful people you can imagine. For the most part, they brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group. Now, it's always interesting. They, they didn't bring in the man, did they? And, and adultery is a, uh, a two-participant sport, okay? Uh, just to say it plainly. And why didn't they bring in the man? Well, because they're corrupt. And it's not about justice here. And it's not about morality. In verse 4 through 6, it says, And they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, this is interesting. To stone someone to death, there had to be eyewitnesses. You couldn't stone someone to death uh, because you said they killed somebody. Somebody had to see it happen. And the same way with adultery. So they said, we, we saw it happen. She was called. And the law of Moses commands us to stone this woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this as a question, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What was the trap? Well, the trap was this. If Jesus said, kill her, then he's automatically going to lose credibility with a group of people he's very popular with. The bad people, the partying people, the wild people, they love Jesus. And he connected with them. And so if he says, kill this woman, he's automatically lost credibility with them. But also, at this time, and this is very important to understand the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's, there's at least four different types of law. And don't commit adultery is a moral and ethical law which transcends the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament, New Testament. Stoning people to death for committing adultery was a civil law of Judaism when, Ju when Israel was a country in the Old Testament. By Jesus' day, 2,000 years later, they were, or 2,000 years ago, they were under Roman control. The Roman law, they could not enforce a death penalty on someone. There was one or two crimes that if they were done at the temple, they could. But everything else, they couldn't. So when they asked Jesus, should we stone her by him? If he says, if he says yes, he's not a friend of sinners. And then they can say to the Roman authorities, he's defying Roman law. He's, he's treasoning. But if he says, no, don't stone her, then he looks like he's a liberal and he doesn't believe that you should enforce the Bible. But I'll tell you what I said last week. Never play games with Jesus and think that you're going to trick him and win. You know, I, I, literally, I was talking to somebody who lives in another state a few weeks ago and they were talking about standing before God at the judgment and they go, well, I think when I get there, I'll be able to bargain with him about this. <laughs> bargain, with, bargain with God? at the judgment seat? I mean, who do you think you're talking to, a preacher? I mean, it's going to be God. You're not going to, you're going to bargain with him. And, and so that's, that's the trap. That's where they are. In verse 7, when, it, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw 
a stone. I got to tell you a kidney stone joke that I heard this week. How many of you ever had a kidney stone? I never have, so I guess this is why it's funny. If I've had a, I'll, I'll get one this week. This will be God's way of punishing me. But th- this lady, th- this man had a kidney stone and uh, for several weeks, and he couldn't pass it. And his wife got one, and within a few days, she passed it. And she told him, she goes, I must be more spiritual than you. And he said, why? And she misquoted the scripture, and she said, because God said, he who is without sin will cast the first stone. Okay, don't, don't laugh. I can make this bad, I promise you. Okay, wherever I was. Um, when Jesus said, you who are without sin cast the first stone, here's literally what he was saying. If you have no sin in your life, you go for it. If you don't lust, you don't lose your temper, if you're not self-righteous, if you're not judgmental, you're not arrogant, you're not a punk, that's a Greek word, you go for it. You throw the stone at her, is what Jesus said. In verse 8 and 9, again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left and with the woman still standing. What did he write on the ground? We, we, we'll find out in heaven. Was he writing some scriptures? Maybe. Was he writing the names of the women that these guys had committed adultery with, that would have got their attention because they'd been kicking the sand there, wouldn't they, to cover that up. Maybe he wrote the name of the man who the woman was with, who was one of their buddies, understood the setup. Maybe he was just doodling in the sand. But this is the older ones got it first, that we're guilty too. And for all the goofiness of the Pharisees, at least at this one particular time, they recognized that they were sinners. You know, this is such a great story because in it you see a classical mess of humanity, don't you? You see a lady who's, who's either a prostitute or a serial adulterer. You see a bunch of religious people who are hypocritical, who are mean, who are judgmental, who are self-righteous, who are arrogant, and who think they stand for everything God wants them to, and in fact, they stand for everything that God is not about. David Jeremiah is a preacher in California. This is a good quote that will sting some of us. He says, so oftentimes the greatest sinners are the greatest accusers. The people who are hiding stuff in their own life are the ones that can find anything and everything in your life. Wow, that was the Pharisees. Why didn't Jesus come unglued on this immoral woman? Why didn't Jesus come unglued on these hypocritical goofballs. L-O-V-E. The most popular verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. That word love there means that God unconditionally chose with an active, visible, present love to express love to the world, to every individual, to you and to me. Here's the coolest part of the story. It's where it begins. Jesus looked at this lady that they wanted to kill. They looked at her as a piece of trash and and morally uh, bankrupt, and he loved her. Jesus looked at these Pharisees who were snooty and who were, like I said earlier, really just religious punks, and he loved them. What's your sin today? 
Are you 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 a drug addict? You alcoholic? You having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend? You into homosexuality? Are you a married person who's got somebody on the side? Your computer bring up bad stuff? Maybe none of that applies to you, but you sit self-righteously over other people. You're judgmental and you're harsh. And for some reason, you don't think that that's wrong. Here's the great news. No matter what our junk is today, Jesus loves us. Isn't that wonderful? That Jesus loves you. We're going to see in a moment. He, he loves us too much to leave us where we are, but he loves us just where we are for who we are. Jesus loves us just like he did these people. Philip Yancey's an author. And Philip Yancey went to speak to a conference that this church was having for prostitutes. That'd be an interesting conference. And, and, and Philip Yancey's asked to go speak to it. And, and as he's, uh, he's talking to him about Jesus and Jesus' love, and it's a room full of prostitutes. And he, in this message, he shares with them Matthew twenty-one thirty-one. Listen to what it says. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Jesus just told a parable. The first they answered, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God. He was talking to the religious people before the religious people. And at that, he said, those prostitutes set up. And Jesus said, uh, and, and then he said to them, he goes, listen, the prostitutes connected better with Jesus than the religious people. He loved the religious people, but he loved them. And a lady raised her hand. She said, sir, you don't understand. We are the lowest of the low. Everybody has somebody they can look down upon. Everybody finds someone that they're morally, ethically, financially superior to that they can look down upon. She said, we have no one. We're the lowest. No one respects or cares for a prostitute. Sir, are you telling me that Jesus loves me? And he said, absolutely. He said, the room turned upside down. That's our Jesus. Isn't that awesome? So I tell you, Jesus meets you where you are. And Christian, I tell you, that's who we're supposed to be in this world. We are to love people. See, our problem as Christians is we want people to get washed up and cleaned up. Then they can come to church and we can love them. It doesn't work that way. Many of you didn't get washed up and cleaned up before you came to church. You came and Jesus washes you and cleans you up. That's the whole purpose. So we love people. As a church, we are called to love people. We don't compromise with truth. We're going to see that in a minute. But we love people. I want to read to you something my daughter Alicia put on Facebook the other day. I asked her if she had hijacked it and she confessed to it. So I don't know where it comes from, but not from Alicia or me. The Bible is the only book where the author is in love with the reader. Isn't that great? The Bible is the only book where the author is in love with the reader. Jerry Falwell was a great preacher, a great religious leader in America for many years. And he developed a friendship with a guy named Larry Flint. And I know none of you know who he is, but Larry Flint was a, a smut peddler. 
And they became friends because they were in debates against each other. And one time, Larry Flint's, excuse me, Falwell's son asked him, Daddy, how do you have a relationship with this guy? He said, well, I don't approve of anything he does. I mean, you know, we argue all the time. Even on TV, we are in arguments. He goes, but God called me to love him. He's a human being Jesus died for. I love him. And he said, plus, someday, someday he's going to have a need or a problem or God's going to be working in his heart. And the person he's going to reach out to is someone who loved him way back then. Amen. That's what the church is supposed to be like. How do we live in these times effectively? We understand that God loves us and everybody else. We love people, and as a church, we love people too. The second word is the word grace. Grace and love are sisters, but they are different. There's, a, there's a, uh, certainly a definition difference. In verse 3, we see the opposite of grace. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. They wanted to embarrass her, to humiliate her, to make their point. They were willing to impale her on a stake. Look what Jesus does in verse 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, No one, sir, she said. Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. What is grace, if you're taking notes? Very simply, grace is undeserved or unearned favor. In other words, it's somebody being kind to you and generous to you, and you did not earn it. In fact, you did not only not earn it, you don't deserve it. It's unearned and undeserved favor. Let me give you three important Biblical definitions. The first is justice. What is justice? This is biblical. Justice is you get what you deserve. The Pharisees deserved a beating, and technically the woman deserved to be stoned. Justice is you get what you deserve. Mercy is you don't get what you deserve. In one sense, the Pharisees and the woman didn't, they were extended mercy. They did not get in a negative sense, what they deserve. Now, here's grace, okay? Grace is you get what you don't deserve in a positive sense, okay? I know that's a, some, we're playing on words there, but grace is you're getting something, a gift that you don't deserve. That's what grace is. You see, grace, God's grace in these passages, in these verses are so beautiful It's Jesus reaching down to these people and loving them and saying, I don't only love you, but if you want it, I'm willing to forgive you and give you a fresh start and a new start. That's what grace is. That's what Jesus wants to extend to you. That's what we as Christians are to extend to people. Every true church ought to be a grace place. Amen? It ought to be a grace place. Several years ago, uh, there was a, a story in Texas that involved the, the Texas Juvenile Detention Center in Gainesville, Texas. There is a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a youth prison is basically what it is for boys. And people who get sent there have been convicted of a crime. I mean, this isn't like a, you know, a first, these are people who've been in a lot of trouble, convicted of a crime. And this is a prison for young people. If you're real good, not a good basketball player, but a good inmate, 
they will let you be on the prison basketball team that plays about five games a year. <laughs> but you've got to be a really good inmate. One slip up and you're off the team. The prison basketball team is not good. My guess is that most of the better basketball players don't stay out of trouble or something because the ones that end up on the basketball team probably shouldn't be on the basketball team. And so they're able to go, at Texas rules, they can go to some private schools and play. They go on a prison bus. They go with prison guards. Everywhere they go, they're the visiting teams. One player said that he had his mom came to one game and she never came back. So every game they go to, they have no fans. They don't bring, a, they don't bring the pep squad of other inmates, okay? <laughs> they have no fans. They have no cheerleaders. They have nothing. So they go in a gym where people are already even a little nervous. You know, these are the prisoner boys. And, and so every game, it's uncomfortable. And they normally get beat real bad. They go to Vanguard School in Waco, a private school. And they walk in the gym, and they couldn't believe what they saw. This school decided before the game they were going to pour grace on these young boys, these young men. So they took half of their cheerleaders and put them in the colors that the detention center uniforms were. And they put them on the prisoner's side. They took half of their fans and they put them on the side that was the prisoner's side. Half the gym was decorated with posters saying, Go Tornadoes. That's not a good name for a prison team, is it? The Tornadoes. With their names and their numbers, we're cheering for you. And for, for the length of that high school basketball game, those boys experienced what every kid should be able to experience. And one of those guys said after the game, what I experienced today, I will remember the rest of my life. That's grace. Some of you may say this morning that you're not worthy of God's grace and forgiveness. Can I tell you a secret? You're not. I'm not. You may say this morning, well, you know, those people come to our church and, you know, are they really worthy of our grace and forgiveness? No. But see, it's not about us. It's about God. God is worthy to give us that grace and forgiveness. I'm not worthy to receive it, but I have one who's worthy to give it to me. You see, how did Jesus successfully navigate his world? Man, he loved people and he poured grace on people. That's who we're supposed to be as a church, as Christians, and that's how God's trying to reach you this morning the same way. Now, I want to give you a last thought, and this brings it together. Jesus calls us to respond properly to truth. You can't leave this out. You see, a lot of times, a lot of times Christians go straight to this point and they ignore the first two and it doesn't work. Or either we go to one and two and we leave this out. But Jesus doesn't leave us with just love and grace. He always calls us to stay in his boundaries, truth. In verse 11, I don't condemn you either, Jesus said. Give me a high five and you go party again, girl. If that's in your Bible, we need to get you a new one. 
Jesus said, I don't condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Life of sin was clearly implying that either she was a prostitute or that she was a serial adulterer. And Jesus was saying to her, listen, I love you. I poured my grace on you. I'm not condemning you. But here's your part. You've got to repent. To use our our language, you you need to get saved. You need to get right with God, and you need to be different. Not perfect, but different from this point on in your life. You need to put this behind you. See, Jesus always meets us where we are. Listen, Jesus loves you just just where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you where you are. And that's exactly what happened to her. Turn from your life. Repent from your way of sin. Justin Bieber is a, a singer and an entertainer who's kind of lost his head in the last few years. And there was a good article about him in a magazine several weeks ago. And it caught my attention. The title of the article said, I want to live like Jesus. Huh. Part of my profession, you know, I'll stop and read those articles. And it, it sounded like the Bieber has found Jesus. It's just awesome, awesome. Now, there was a couple of red flags. I mean, he said some stuff, which is okay. You know, he's young, doesn't know what, you know, young as far as a Christian very, would be very young. But he said, you know, I don't want to be religious. I thought, that's good. That's good. You don't need to be religious. But, you know, and I'm not going to get into going to church and all that stuff. And I thought, oh, no, 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 no. This is a small thing compared to what we're talking about this morning. But see, church is part of the gig. Right off the bat, Justin's, Justin's saying basically, I'll kind of determine truth, and I'll bend truth to me. See, that's not the way it is. Truth needs to bend us to it, not the other way around. And something you said, well, church attendance is small. Church attendance is part of the gig. It's obedience. It, 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 it would help Justin grow. It would help him be loved. It would help him find a place to serve. It would help him find a place to fellowship with. It would correct him, and it would encourage him. It does all those things. But I want to tell you, that's exactly how God's meeting you this morning. God meets you with love and grace, but he says, listen, whether it's adultery, whether it's fornication, whether it's a bad heart, you're judgmental, whatever it is, I love you, but you need to repent and turn to me. You need to give your life to me. And as a church and as a Christian, we can't compromise on that. Man, I'm going to tell you, a lot of churches are. A lot of churches are basically saying, well, we'll let society determine what is right or wrong. This is what determines right or wrong for us. It's the Bible. I've said this uh, several times recently, but one of the greatest lies out there today is if you don't approve of someone's lifestyle, you hate them. You're a hater. That is an absolute lie. You can come to me and say, I think you eat too many donuts. You shouldn't do that. And I'll probably say, I'll be Christian. I'll say, okay, okay, whatever, you know. I'll say, get the donut out of your own eye before you come pluck mine. You don't have to approve of everything I do to love me. See, that's a lie from Satan. If you tell someone, I disapprove of your lifestyle, then you don't, you're a hater. That's not true. Here's another quote I I want you to see that I think is so good. A lie doesn't become truth. Wrong doesn't become right. Evil doesn't become good just because it's accepted by a majority. Christians aren't ruled by the polls. We're ruled by Jesus Christ. 
Truth isn't determined in a vote. Truth is determined by Jesus. You see, how do we navigate successfully? We do it in love and grace. And we always call ourselves and other people to respond to the truth. I want to share with you a story that was in a Charisma magazine, a religious magazine last year. Happened about 10 years ago in a a big city in our country. There were two lesbian girls, young ladies, who got up one morning and decided to go to a church in their area to cause trouble. They really just decided we're going to get up and go to church and we're going to see if we can create a stir. So they came in, they sat towards the back, and everybody was nice to them. Everybody was friendly, everybody was loving, everybody was kind. They left, I thought, that's weird. So the next week they go, we'll go back. Certainly by next week we'll begin to cause trouble. And then they said, well, that's not working. They said, well, well, we'll move closer to the front. So every week they kept coming, and they kept getting closer and closer to the front, hoping to cause trouble. But everybody just loved them and was friendly to them. Well, after several months, the two girls break up. But the one girl, Amy, who's still living in that community, says, you know, I like the church. They're kind to me. Something's going on in my heart when I go there. She kept coming to church. Several months after that, Amy gets saved. Amy gets out of that lifestyle. Amy is a minister today. Here's what she said. They loved me where I was. They poured grace on me. And they didn't compromise the truth. Is that a formula that works? Yeah. That's Jesus' way. It works every time. May that be what we are. Let's pray. If you're a Christian this morning, man, let God do a work in your heart today. Let God convict you, mold you, change you, love you, whatever it is you need. If you're not a Christian or you're unsure if you're a Christian, Would you pray with me where you are? If you're ready to do this and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to repent of my sins. Jesus, I I accept that you're God's son and you died and arose for me. Jesus, come into my heart. And I surrender my life to you. Let me have your attention just for a second. We're going to stand in a moment. And when we do, here's what I want you to do. If you just prayed and asked Christ in your heart or you're ready to, when we stand, come today, talk to a minister, seal that deal with you and Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you'd like to join our church. We would love for you to. And one way you can do it, you can join after church or you can join when we stand. You can come. You can join this morning. We would love for you to. We're going to be a loving, graceful, truth church. Maybe as a Christian today, God's spoken to your heart about things that you need to get right with Him. Maybe it's some sin that you're dabbling in, or maybe it's just a wrong heart towards other people. Maybe at the altar or with a minister, you need to get things right with God. Let's do business with God. Let's stand. You come now as we sing.